This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by our speaker series, Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesday at 4 p.m. Our friends from Celestico will lead a conversation about overcoming product development barriers. For more information and to register, go to devicetalks.com. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I hope you had a great 4th of July. We are happy to be back with you. We'll be resuming our weekly schedule for the rest of the year into the holidays. I imagine maybe a brief blip for Labor Day, but let's not talk about that now. Let's not wish away the summer, even though it's cold and rainy here uh, in the Boston area. It is still early July. So uh, let's push forward with uh, today's podcast. We have three speakers for you today. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try to do the things slightly, slightly differently going forward with the podcast, at least when I can. For those of those... For- For those of you who know about our Device Talks meetings, uh, we really try to build those uh, into uh, five different areas or or build those with five different components. Uh, One of them is innovation and investment. The second is product development and prototyping. The third is manufacturing and sourcing. Then we have regulatory reimbursement, and then we have new tools and technology. So going forward, when I can, I'm going to try to include some themes into these podcasts. Not every episode will be this way, but uh, when there are opportunities to sort of give you a deeper dive into one of those five areas, I will do it. And today we're going to focus on investment and investors, both public and private. First, you're going to hear from Danielle Antalfi. She is the Managing Director of Medical Supplies and Devices at SVB Lyric. Uh, she is an analyst, of course, and she covers, uh, she's got a, a long list of, uh, of companies that she covers. She covers most of the major ones, but she wrote a report recently on home-based dialysis. So we're going to talk about that in that conversation. We'll talk about Baxter and Outset and some other companies. We'll also extend the conversation a bit to talk about MedTech IPOs, the importance of device companies having some sort of remote connection component to their devices. And this is something we hit upon in a recent device talks Tuesdays hosted by S3 Connected Health. So uh, Danielle was, uh, this is her first time on the podcast. She will be back because she was uh, a lot of fun to talk to. Then later in the podcast, we're going to present sort of part two of the deeper dive we're doing into the investment in Clearly Health. Uh, Clearly is a company that is using AI and imaging to develop a better diagnostic for cardiovascular disease, specifically a better way to prevent heart attacks. The company recently raised $43 million for a Series B, and the investors included Vinsana Capital and LRV Health. So we're going to talk today with uh, Trip Peak of LRV Health. He's a managing partner there. And Justin Klein. Justin is a managing partner of Vensana Capital. We had Justin on the podcast a long time ago, and I've known Justin for uh, a long time. It's great to have him back. So in this sort of part two of that deeper dive feature, I'm going to talk pretty deeply with uh, with Trip and Justin about 
how they came to learn about Clearly Health. And really, I think the nuts and bolts, I try to get at the nuts and bolts of what goes into building a syndicate. So I hope anyone out there who's interested in understanding that process will find that conversation useful. So that's what we're doing this week. And now it's my pleasure to bring back my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Good to be here, Tom. Happy Friday. We're doing this on a Friday again. We are doing it on a Friday. I am getting uh, pelted by the remnants of uh, Hurricane Elsa right now. Oh, that's a, delightful. A nice little storm outside. So quite, is, quite rainy and cold. For That is July. one thing I do not miss about living on the East Coast, living in New Jersey, was uh, having like a storm like that come up the coast. Like, do not miss that. Well, thank God your weather in Minneapolis is mild. And it's so mild all year long <laughs> just you know extreme weather in minnesota no never never happened so i have an, an update for you chris newmark since we'd have our wow. podcast last week i would have shared this little anecdote last week but we we did not talk but uh i can now uh, i've mentioned my air tag experience before i have the air tag for the market yeah i can now report that an air tag fully survives going through the washer and dryer congrats yeah, unfortunately, the car key does not. Mm, but yeah. the air tag was 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 fine. But uh, yes, I had an experience so, uh, like that with a car key uh, recently. And uh, you know, the nice thing is now you can just look up a YouTube video. I could look up a YouTube video on how to pop my key fob to put in a new coin battery. I actually was able to reassemble it and it worked, but uh, it did it did break into three parts, but reassembled it and worked. Now, now I have a backup key, so I'm, I'm quite happy. But uh, anyway, we for won't. anyone out there who is, who's uh, interested in keeping a track of their car keys, the AirTag does survive a washer and a dryer. That's awesome. I'm going to get some of those. That sounds great because I'm, I'm in your boat. I like I, I yeah. We have moments like wh- where are the keys? Where is the yeah? It happens. Which, happens to us yes. all. So yes. All right. Well, we are. Uh, did you give us the top ten stories since you were we gave you last week off, or you just you were just bringing five? To, what? All right. No one wants to hear ten stories. Come on. <laughs> all right. We'll stick to the formula. We have our five new markers, newsmakers. Chris, bring us into number five. Number five. We've got uh, Conformis and Stryker uh, settling a uh, patent infringement case that went back to uh, Right Medical, which Stryker acquired. So um, the the deal is that uh, you know Stryker's going to make a one time fifteen million dollar payment to Conformis, and in return, uh, you know they'll get a. Uh, you know, non-exclusive license, you know, when it comes to some uh, conformist patents that were in question in this case. But, uh, you know, that was one of the big trends we saw during the pandemic was like there were so many uh, legal cases getting settled. It seems to seems to be continuing even as we, uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, get out of this thing in the U.S. So um, it's uh, it's like a, it's like an age of Aquarius for uh, <laughs> medtech industry Pe- litigation. Peace to us all. Yeah, that's an <laughs> interesting one, though. I, I would have guessed that, I mean, Conformis and Mako were sort of rivals way back and then Stryker bought Mako. But this patent issue was with Wright, which Stryker also purchased. That was the that was yeah. Yeah, over a, a a shoulder implant, correct? Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I believe so. Yeah. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was like a, a conformist right patent spat. And, uh, you know, they, uh, yeah, now, you know, Wright's new or- owner, Stryker, is uh, 
is uh, you know settling and yeah, specific shoulder instruments and, and related components were involved in the in the patent dispute. Good so stuff. That is is done. They've made peace. It's great. Excellent. We'll move forward for they'll move forward and we can move forward as well to number four on the new Marcus Newsmakers. So Siemens Healthineers uh, won uh, FDA clearance for uh, their uh, Magnetom Freemax MR scanner, and uh, this is uh, kind of like the bigger, better, full body whole body scanner out of uh, Siemens Health and Ears. Um, you know, one one little fact about it that I thought was really interesting was that they were saying it was the most lightweight, compact whole body scanner. So how much do you think that thing weighs? A whole body scanner? <laughs> gotta be <laughs> a like, whole body MR scanner. Gotta be at least 20 pounds. No, no, it's only three and a half tons. Oh, okay. It's only three and a half tons. <laughs> it it would be more than. In the world of MR, that is that is light. It's light. It's cool. Chris, well, it's, it's funny you brought this up because this weekend I need help moving my uh, Freemax magnetic resonance scanner. Are you, are you available to come by? I'll have pizza later on. You know, no, I'm getting some root canal work this weekend. <laughs> I got to get that all, all done. Damn it. <laughs> got to mow the lawn, too. Sorry, man. Fine. Like, I I'll you ask know. around here. All right. Maybe you can find a neighbor kid to help you. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into this interview, I did want to uh, once again remind you that we have scheduled our Device Talks in-person meetings. We rolled out our 2022 schedule. We'll be meeting in Boston on May 10th and 11th. We'll be in Minneapolis on June 6th and 7th. And we'll be in Santa Clara. Our Device Talks West meeting will be held on October 19th and 20th. So look forward to uh, providing you more information there. Stay tuned. We'll have some uh, some interesting ways to get the news out. And of course, I uh, look forward to seeing you at one or all of those meetings in 2022. Well, Danielle and Talfi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom, so much for having me. Love to be here. It's uh, it's great to uh, get the view from from Wall Street or or from wherever we are these days uh, in the uh, in the land of remote. But uh, yes. I, I know you're still paying close attention to uh, to all that's going on. And uh, you'd written a report recently that I wanted to follow up on, and you were kind enough to to send along about uh, home based dialysis. And uh, it's it's an interesting space, uh, and I want to dig into it a, a bit more. But uh, one of the companies you're focusing on is Outset Medical. We had Leslie Trigg on the podcast when the company went public. It's one of those uh, one of those companies. When it came out, it sounded like what they were working on maybe would happen five or ten years from now. Um, yeah. And I'm just amazed that it's uh, that it's found traction so quickly and that it's really uh, becoming uh, becoming reality. I don't know if it's just the fact that I'm older now and things just <laughs> seem like yesterday when they're really not. But uh, I yeah. think there's I think there's more to the story than that. But how would you characterize uh, home dialysis prior to uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic? Was it was there a movement? Yeah. Well, so if I could give a little context here, Please. I, I follow I followed this space now for over 10 years. I actually covered a company called Next Stage Medical, which was the pioneer really in, in home uh, hemodialysis. So specifically hemodialysis. There's also peritoneal dialysis. Dialysis, which is home-based as well. Um, and uh, outside is home hemodialysis as well. So um, I've covered Next Stage for, I had covered Next Stage for over 10 years. They actually got acquired by Fresenius Medical, which I think is, as folks may know, is one of the largest dialysis service providers here, well, globally and, and also here in the US, uh, but they also are a manufacturer and provide products um, on top of service. So um, for the last 10 years, I've been waiting for home hemodialysis to take off because mm-hmm. it's 
so much sense to me um, from my perspective of like, of course, when you prefer to dialyze in the home and also more frequent um, dialysis uh, leads to better outcomes from a clearance perspective, you need fewer ancillary drugs, you, gen- you generally speaking do better, not to mention, you know, the quality of life benefit um, of not having to go to a dialysis center three yeah. times. However, um, as you noted, this is something that has been stagnant at call it 2%, 2.5% penetrated of the total um, dialysis market for, for the last five plus years. So um, I, I do think that the COVID-19 pandemic has helped at least magnify or highlight the, the benefits of dialyzing in the home versus in the center. But I actually would say I think, and I'd be curious to hear what someone like Leslie would would say about this. I I think it helped, but I think there's also a lot of other factors that is starting to drive what I do think, and you probably saw from reading my report, is an inflection point in home dialysis adoption. And I use Mm -hmm. dialysis as a broader term, again, including both peritoneal dialysis, the major players there, Baxter, Fresenius, as well as home hemodialysis which is outset medical and next stage, which is now part of Fresenius. Um, But what's what's happened and it's sort of all happened at once. So first of all, um, you had regulatory changes or a regulatory initiative, I guess I would say that Mm -hmm. is leading changes from a reimbursement perspective. And that is the AAKHI, the Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative that was implemented by the Trump administration um, and is targeting 80% of new patients getting on um, di- starting dialysis, starting in the home versus going into a center over mm-hmm. the, I think I forget the exact timeline. I want to say it's like five years or something like that. Every, I have to tell you, Tom, every um, center that I've spoken to medical director nephrologist thinks that that's target, that target is pretty lofty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever, I mean, right now between home hemo at two to two and a half percent, peritoneal dialysis at like 14 percent, we're only at 15 percent or so of the total population dialyzing in the home. So there's a lot of runway there. Um, AAKHI then in turn drove some changes from a reimbursement perspective. The ETC, um, it's, it's a treatment choice payment model that really drives, um, drives better reimbursement for home dialysis and um, is really going to, I think, be um, probably one of the bigger drivers of putting patients into the home from the center's perspective, you know, breaking down some of the barriers for the center because reimbursement has always been an issue for home hemodialysis Mm -hmm. for peritoneal dialysis. So that also happened. You had that. So this is all all prior to to the pandemic. This, this is, this is exactly. all. These were all moving forward in that direction. I'm all moving it, in that direction. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, it, right. So in actually 2018, I think was when the AKHI was first announced in the ETC payment model. Which not all said. Just to be clear, it's kind of a um, um, it's a, it's in a trial mode right now. Not all centers are participating in it. But essentially, mm-hmm. what it does is it penalizes you if you don't have a certain number of patients. Doing home dialysis, and it um, incrementally reimburses you if you do have hit a certain target of patients doing home dialysis. Um, that sort of came into effect. I want to say this year, more recently, but the AAKHI was announced by the Trump administration. I think in like July of 2018. Okay. So 
happened. Then you have the COVID-19 pandemic happen, which no surprise here. Um, everyone's at home. People are scared to go into to physicians' offices, dialysis clinics, and really highlighted the benefit um, of, of having an option to stay home. Um, and then on top of that, Tom, you have technology evolution. And this is where someone like Outset Medical, but I would also argue Baxter and Fresenius on the peritoneal dialysis side come into play. And, um, you know, there are a lot of barriers to adoption for uh, home dialysis, first and foremost of which is ease of use and comfort. So the Tableau machine from Outset is very easy to use. Um, and from a comfort perspective, both Outset Medical and Baxter have two-way communication between the nephrologist and the patient so nephrologists um, can basically track their patients in, quote, real time. Um, and it makes it a lot less stressful, I guess I would say, for the patient, you know, sitting here doing a life-saving, essentially what is a life-saving procedure? You're getting liters of blood removed from your body, cleaned and put back in. You know, that could be a scary thing to do in the home. Um, and uh, it gives them a lot more comfort knowing that they have this sort of safety net with the, the remote capabilities of the two-way connectivity for uh, Tableau on home hemodialysis and um, the share source uh, technology that Baxter has on their PD machine. So I would say it's, it's those three things, regulatory, the COVID-19 pandemic, and technology evolution that really are driving this inflection point now post-pandemic. Well, I can't say we're post-pandemic yet. That's yeah, that's no kidding. I guess we, we just, <laughs> uh, it's it's good to have that, but you're right. I, I catch myself from time to time. How, how was the industry sort of enabled, able to uh, shift gears during the lockdown when hospitals were inaccessible or was there much shifting going on over the past year and a half? Yeah, well, so I think from a chronic dialysis perspective, when you're talking about bedside in the hospital, I think that that's actually something that drove higher adoption of, of a device like the Tableau. Um, in we call that the acute market, the in-hospital segment. So we're talking less about the sort of going to a dialysis center market um, and more of the when you're in the hospital and you need to be dialyzed. Um, and I, I've talked to folks that, you know, we're dialyzing this, this one uh, physician, nephrologist, she's based in New York. And as you know, early in the, in the, the pandemic, New York was slammed um, from a COVID perspective. And she said um, they purchased Tableau machines um, for their hospital. And they literally would have, because they, there's no um, water source, there's no um, water treatment room necessary for the Tableau machine. <laughs> Um, it filters the water itself in the machine. So you just need a, a hookup, a water hookup, um, like a faucet. And she said she would have, they would have patients lining the halls, dialyzing the halls, wow. hallway to the hospital. Wow. Um, so I think that's where they pivoted from a technology perspective. That's, that's, uh, that's quite an image to, to, to imagine the, the yeah, patients in yeah. the hallway like that. Yeah. And then I think also just so, so just from a chronic, you know, the dialysis center perspective, I think telehealth, you know, you'd hear this across probably any healthcare segment that telehealth is, is definitely something that has been adopted more and, and telehealth is something that's going to enable more home dialysis. Mm -hmm. I, you know, that, and that's what I'm hearing because it, it, it makes it easier for the physician to access the patient and it increases that comfort level that I talked about when you're doing a, a quote, scary ish procedure at, at home like that without a healthcare professional, you feel like they might, you know, they, they are only a phone call away. Um, and so I think that that really has, has helped 
um, these centers adopt or embrace home dialysis uh, in, a, in a more meaningful way than they, they have prior to. But other than that, I'm not sure from a dialysis perspective, a lot changed. I mean, the industry was impacted. You, you might already know this. But just these patients that are end-stage renal disease patients, they have high, they're they're very susceptible to COVID and they don't do well. So mm-hmm. the mortality rate for these patients has gone up during the COVID nineteen pandemic. So the, the patient pool has actually gotten smaller. But presumably, as we come out of the pandemic, you know, we'll, we'll return to to normal, which is sadly an industry where the patient pool is growing low single digits perpetually. Oh, that's that's tough. Uh, so, what assurances do you have that uh, that things will remain in place or keep moving in this direction a- after we hope? Well, hopefully, when we get when we're really past this pandemic uh, and yeah. when we're going back to to business as usual, I think we're even seeing. You know, I think we're already starting to see some pushback on telehealth. It's not going to be as easy as it was. I don't know where the insurer is going to go and paying for that sort of thing. Is there a danger of uh, of of moving backwards, or uh, is the this cat out of the bag and and there's no getting it back in. I, you know, I am a little bit more of an optimist versus a pessimist. So I am, I do lean towards the latter, Tom, that the cat's out of the bag and there's, it's not going back in. Um, You know, I do acknowledge that telehealth is a piece of this and we'll see what happens from a reimbursement perspective there. But I do feel like once a center is invested in a home program, they're invested. Um, And so I, 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 and, and as and I think the key here is that on top of it, beyond just COVID itself, I think this is why what's the this is why the other two factors are very important. Technology has gotten a lot easier to use and um, has enabled, like I said, that two way communication that increases the comfort level for both the patient and the physician. And also, in, uh, there's are more reimbursement incentives now mm-hmm. program. I mean, and, and, and on top of that, I actually don't cover Fresenius or DeVita, but Fresenius was kind enough to um, do a call with me during this deep dive on the renal space that I did back in June. Um, and Fresenius has committed uh, to getting a 15, I think the target was 15% of their treatments in the home by 2024, I think it was. Well, they're already almost there. I mean, I think for the last quarter, they were at 14.6% or something like that. So to have the commitment from a, a major dialysis provider like Fresenius, um, on top of all these other factors that I mentioned, I mean, it, it feels like finally the industry the, the walls of resistance are coming down and the industry is shifting. And I don't think it has been moving at a glacial pace, but unfortunately, much like we have with climate change, those glaciers are starting to melt more quickly. Absolutely. No, that's a great point. So how do you think other med tech sectors will be impacted in, in how they're viewed by investors? Are you, as an analyst of these companies and, and future companies that may be going public, how much are you weighing their ability to have these remote connections to offer home-based capabilities? I mean, I think we're seeing advances in like in, in diabetes treatment. There's a stronger yeah. connectivity there. Uh, are we going to see more and more of medical devices needing to offer this to, to really uh, provide the maximum value for patients, but also for investors. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think remote monitoring capabilities were becoming increasingly important, quite frankly, even before COVID. What I think COVID did was, you know, shine a magnifying glass onto uh, the need for 
mm-hmm. remote monitoring capabilities versus um, really, you know, create the need, if that makes sense. So I think that it just exposed the need versus created the need. And I think that um, it probably accelerated uh, the transition to more and more remote capabilities. You hear uh, companies from Edwards Life Sciences, uh, and they make transcatheter and surgical heart valves, and they have a critical care segment talking about AI capabilities and investing in companies that do AI too. You mentioned the diabetes companies, continuous glucose monitors, and the remote capabilities uh, that they provide for a patient uh, to monitor their blood sugar. You know, I think every single company out there today is talking about some component of remote whether it's remote monitoring or AI data collection to improve outcomes for patients and to push more therapy into the home. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a, a, of, of your list of things you're looking at. That definitely is a box that you need to check when you're evaluating a company. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to get your thoughts on, uh, on just, uh, a couple of other companies. I know you cover Neuropace, which is a company I've covered for a long time. I have mentioned in the podcast before. It's like one of the first really cool med tech stories that I kind of fell in love with. Uh, it was great to see them go public. What's your, your, your take on, well, just a broad question about where they're going. Uh, and if you, I don't know if you've written any reports on, on where they're headed, but I also would love to, after that, get your, your thoughts on just where the IPO market is. This may be more of an investment banking question, but but it seems like we're seeing an interesting IPO market uh, even beyond the SPACs, which just kind of add another crazy element right. to it. But uh, what's your what are what's your thoughts on uh, on Neuropace? Where is it Where is it headed? I, so I really uh, I really like this company. I like the stock. We actually recently initiated, um, obviously post IPO, and we have an outperform rating. We have thirty dollar price target on the stock, so lots of upside we see from a stock perspective. You know, this is an interesting interesting company. I have also followed this for quite some time, Tom, and and if you've been following it for a while, you probably know this was very much more of a science-focused company. Mm -hmm. Um, And over the last three years, it's really transitioned to a commercial organization. And one of the number one questions I'm asked by investors is, is why now? You know, this product's been approved and this product being their RNS, the responsive neurostimulator for drug-resistant focal epilepsy patients. Why now? This has been approved for a number of years why is now the time that they're finally seeing traction? And it's because of that. It's because this was previously a very science-focused company, which quite frankly, was not the wrong thing to do. It gave the, the ability to evolve the technology, develop. This is a company that has very important remote capabilities, allows physicians to remotely program and prescribe and change therapy uh, for the patient based on what they're seeing from the data collection they're getting from, um, from the RNS system what it's implanted in the patient, which is pretty phenomenal. So it enabled the technology, um, uh, the science focus enabled them to develop the technology to where it needed to be, number one. And and number two, um, it also enabled them to build the clinical data set. I mean, they had nine years of follow-up data on patients showing the benefit of the RNS system in this very undertreated patient population. The stat I look at when thinking of this patient population drug-resistant epilepsy. So these are patients that have already failed. I think it's two or three medications and they're getting, you know, they still are plagued by seizures. And um, there's 50,000 of these patients out there. um, And a portion of those are are this focal 
patient population, but of the of the 50,000 drug resistant epilepsy patients, that's an incidence number that's per year that enter the, enter the, the system. Um, only 80, I'm sorry, only, um, 16% of them get an intervention. 84, mm-hmm. 84% of them continue to be managed on medication, That's- even though it doesn't work. It's amazing. And Neuropace, I think, is going to really shift the paradigm because they're the first company to come along and, and offer a really targeted epilepsy product um, that it stimulates, you know, on average, I think it's only three minutes a day because it can, it senses um, when a seizure is starting, that's when it stims versus you think of other um, implantables like vagus nerve stim or deep brain stimulation, they're stimulating based on a program. So they're stimulating as it's programmed versus when you're see, when you're seeing a seizure occur, start to occur. Um, and then the other intervention is surgical resection, which has its own issues, right? I mean, that's a very effective procedure. However, you have major side effects. So I think that Neuropace is really going to change the paradigm in interventional epilepsy care. And I'm really excited to, to watch it happen. And just a quick follow-up on the IPO uh, market. I mean, I guess you sort of answered the question, I mean, Neuropace did go public. It's obviously been around for a long time, but it also has reached a commercial stage. As are we at a point where we're just seeing a whole crop of medical device companies get to that stage where they're mature enough to go public or has public investor appetite for earlier stage, still somewhat untested medical device companies, has that increased? Are, are public investors more willing to, to take a chance on medtech? I think definitely the latter versus the former. I mean, mm-hmm. look at where companies are going public from a revenue run rate perspective. Um, the, the majority are going public at a much earlier stage. I mean, even we talked about outset medical and when they went public, I mean, their revenue run rate, run rate was, was relatively low for a medical mm-hmm. device company, medical device companies. And, and maybe this is a better, I don't want to play banker here, but, you know, based on, on my, um, my experience, medical device companies, really, you're talking about generating something of a in, in, on the order of 50 to 100 million in revenue before you are viewed as able to go public with a clear path mm-hmm. of profitability. So I think that the appetite for investors for earlier stage uh, companies has definitely gone up. I think what companies, I'm sorry, investors want to see is there has to be a TAM story, a total addressable market story here. That's a that's an acronym for TAM is thrown out a lot. TAM expansion story and large TAMs. And so um, large addressable markets, undertreated patient populations like Neuropace is, is going after, like Outset Medical with home dialysis, with only 15% of patients treated in the home today, only two two and a half percent of those on home hemo. So that's what investors are focused more on that and less on the current revenue generation. So I think that it's definitely the latter. That's great. No, I mean, that's fair. I think that's how pharma gets valued. I think that's how tech companies get valued. So sure. uh, yeah. MedTech has always had to kind of provide more to uh, to go public. So excellent stuff, Danielle. I look forward to having you back on the podcast. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, let us uh, let us move on to number three on the new markers newsmakers. 
Well, number three on the list, uh, we got media reports out of Maine that uh, Abbott's laying off as many uh, many as 400 workers, uh, you know, there um, in in, uh, in Westbrook, Maine, um, as as a result of a drop in demand for COVID nineteen diagnostics. Um, you know, and we reached out to Abbott Media Relations about it, and they didn't have uh, you know anything uh, else to add about it. Uh, but um, layoffs are tough. I mean, I guess the flip side is uh, is that you know at least the reason it's because we're you know at least. Uh, um, I mean, there are parts of this country right now where it's getting COVID's getting worse. I mean, if you're down in the deep south, but, you know, at least in places where like we live, like in Minnesota, Massachusetts, uh, you know, the vaccine rates are pretty robust. Um, you know, it kind of feels like we're, we're getting out of it where we are. So and when, you know, the extra thing about that is that there's a lot a lot less uh you know fewer covid tests being made so that is, that um, is too bad i've got family up up that way just a little bit north of there so that's uh that's a lot of jobs for uh it's a lot of jobs for 400 but uh yeah. you're right the, the 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 reason is good uh hopefully we'll find uh, those folks will find a, a way to uh to find a new job yeah hopefully yeah like and you know it's interesting too i mean they're cutting those jobs in maine at the same time we also had a uh, you know story this week about uh how they're uh you know, Abbott's selling its uh, Starlim's informatics uh, products suite to a global investment uh, firm. And this this uh, suite's been used by a whole host of companies for, you know, more than 35, uh, 35 years. So, but um, then again, it just looks like it's just something that maybe not, maybe um, my, my educated guess would be that it's just not something that's like core to mm-hmm. what, what Abbott does these days and so you know it almost seems like um a summer of belt tightening maybe over there yeah i think we're all sort of uh looking at what our priorities are and you're right this was a yeah. the star lens was used as uh as you wrote in biotech chemical food and beverage manufacturing environmental public health forensic so basically everything everything yeah yeah, yeah. So no, Abbott's uh, Abbott's definitely positioning itself for uh, for the post COVID world. So all right, yeah. Let us move into number two on the new Marcus Newsmakers. Well, uh, number two on the list, it's more tough news. We've got a uh, FDA classifying a Medtronic uh, ange- angiographic. Hope I pronounced that right. Angiographic guide wires recall is you know class one. It's most uh, serious uh, kind. Um, you know, so just uh, just another. Uh, Medtronic's had a few of those this year. Um, you know, I, I did a quick analysis, uh, you know, before I jumped on here mm-hmm. and, you know, it looks, it looks kind of like this year so far, um, we're, we're kind of appear to be on pace to kind of get back to the level of serious recalls that we had in MedTech um, back in, uh, back in 2019. Um, you know, 2020 was down, you know, FDA was busy with a few things uh, last year. I don't know what. Um, but, procedures you know, were year, down as well. So, yeah. So. yeah proce- procedures were down as well as you're catching less stuff, you know, um, but, you know, this year, uh, you know, we, we definitely have a lot more and I know, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, Medtronic, um, you know, Medtronic's the largest medical device company in the world. So, you know, like, you know, the, I mean, it looks like they've got just just glancing at it, it looks like about a, a fifth of the serious recalls mm-hmm. this year involve uh, Medtronic, uh, you know, but, you know, if you're a giant company making a bunch of stuff, you know, that, that could make sense. Um, I, so looking at the, the numbers, uh, are we back? So they were down last year. Uh, what about the year before? Are we sort of on pace with 2019 in terms of number of serious recalls? Well, 
you know, it looks like we're about on pace, Um, you know, or maybe a little bit ahead, but uh, you know, it's, yeah, it looks like, looks like we're, it's, it's not like, I mean, you know, somebody who isn't doing enough of analysis could be like, Oh, wait, recalls are way up in in 2021. And, you know, it really, it really looks more to to me. Like it's uh, we're just, we're getting, we're getting back to what we usually, you know, would, would see because we're, we seem to be, you know, on pace to be, you know, on, on level with 2019 or a little bit ahead. Yeah. Well, obviously one recall is uh, is a recall too many. So hopefully maybe yeah. we'll see a slowdown in the second half. It would be nice if we, here's maybe, yeah, yeah here's the, maybe uh, here's the hoping that, 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 you know, goes down. I mean, it's, it's good there. I mean, obviously it seems like this year they're catching a lot more problems and we're, uh, you know, we're getting a lot more uh, things taken care of. So. All right. Let us roll then into the number one new markers, newsmakers. Well, you know, number one um, on the list is that we're back to robotic surgery. We got Levita, Levita Magnetics uh, announcing uh, their, uh, you know, first uh, procedure with their uh, magnetic robot assisted uh, system. Um, and this is kind of like a robotic system that is, uh, you know, that when they say magnetic, this is like using magnets to move tools inside the body. So you have less incisions. Um, so just, just a really uh, interesting concept. And uh, yeah, they had their first uh, first procedure with it, um, uh, reduced incision laparoscopic. Uh, let's just say it was a gallbladder remover, <laughs> removal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this happened in Santiago, uh, Chile, uh, which, uh, you know, that's uh, that's kind of interesting, too, because I know Medtronic, when they were recently announcing uh, their first uh, Hugo procedure that was in uh, Chile as well, um, appears to be a different doctor, different hospital. But like seems like Chile is a place to try out your robotic system first. It's interesting to, to see this again, because when back, back, back in the day when Intuitive was just emerging, there was and still is a company, Stereotaxis, that had a magnetic uh, robotic system. And it was, they were sort of, again, sort of two parallel technologies that were going after the same market. So it's interesting to see this in fashion again. I don't want to say fashion, but to hear, yeah, to hear about it again, I, I, learned, I need to learn more as to why, what are the benefits of using magnets as opposed to uh, just straight robots. Uh, be an interesting story to follow for sure. We'll have to get them on the podcast. We've had a lot of yeah. robotics news lately. Uh, and next week, we'll, Ton of robotics news. we'll be talking with uh, CMR Surgical. And uh, we'll talk with their CEO, and they recently raised six hundred million dollars. So we're actually seeing some huge, huge numbers in uh, in robotics financing. And I'll talk with, again with Adam Sachs of Vicarious Surgical uh, about their wow. their post SPAC life. We'll talk about the SPAC process. Yeah, and uh, they have a, a cool new facility we'll, with a, with a bit of a history to it. So we'll get into that next week. Oh, nice. Yeah, I know they're opening up new digs in, uh, in Massachusetts. So that's awesome. You'll have to tune in next week, Chris, if you want to find oh, out. Come on, so no pre, nothing uh, else. Nope, that's, that's all. Teasing that out, man. You're just teasing it out. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now we'll begin our deeper dive into the recent $43 million Series B round by Clearly Health. First, we'll speak with Trip Peak. Trip, of course, is a managing partner at LRV Health. LRV Health has raised its funds, its most recent funds from payers and providers. So it really looks across the healthcare spectrum, both medtech and digital health, to find ways for its uh, LPs to save money and to improve care. So we'll talk with Trip about uh, how he came to know Clearly Health and about how he helped put the syndicate together. Let's hear from Trip. Well, Trip Peak, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, it's glad to join you. 
It's, it's going to be great to uh, kind of dig into uh, your investment in Clearly, but I want to first find out a little bit about yourself, how you came to uh, to BVC, and tell us a little bit about LRV. Sure. I spent uh, a number of years on the entrepreneur side and then started working down with a company I, I created called Science Park Associates down in New Haven, Connecticut, which was um, really focused on spinning technology-based companies out of Yale. And that kind of put me into the the venture world in part, building those companies and in part uh, getting them financed and got connected with a lot of the folks in the finance world. Started my own seed fund eventually, and that ended up merging in with a group in Boston called Kestrel Ventures, which had been around in Boston for a number of years, was a Mm -hmm. partner there, and then uh, teamed up with my co-founder, Will Cowan, who had uh, been in the health uh, healthcare space quite a while, and um, so we launched LRV and in 2000, and off we went, and wow. we're on a four, fourth fund, and and uh, and it's going great. But this fund is different than, than past funds, right? In terms of where your capital is coming from, who who do you represent? Who do you invest uh, uh, on behalf of? It's really, uh, it was really sort of an evolution. Um, our first three funds, as we, as we developed, this is our fourth fund. It's a little over a hundred million. And the um, first three funds, we, we started to evolve a model where we had more and more strategic investors in the funds um, that were limited partners. And we kind of put that on steroids, if you will, in this fourth fund. And so our current investor base is all institutional funds, uh, institutional players in the uh, healthcare world. Mm-hmm. There's a total of 22, 17 of them are provider systems of different sizes all around the country. Um, And what's interesting about them is because they're different sizes in different parts of the country is that they have, you know, all kinds of different populations that they serve. They all work under different sort of different payment models. Uh, They all different, slightly different missions and communities they, they work with. So it gives us a really good insight to, you know, what's going on in the delivery of healthcare all across the country. And we have a couple of payers and we have a couple of big vendors in the healthcare world as well. So the entire fund is funded by strategic investors who are interested in a return on investment, but also interested in the strategic insights they can get. Talk to me then about the the, the, the flow of inf- the flow of innovation or information from or in potential deals from the hospitals. Do they send ideas to you like, look, we need this, this is what we need, or look at this company? Or are you really out there in the wilderness forging and bringing things back to them and saying, how does this look? You know, is this, is this something you could use? Well, there's a little bit of both. One thing about being connected to the incumbents and the players in the healthcare world is, and, and we're a little different in that we've built out an operating model where we spend a lot of time with the operators in those places, that whether it's the chief medical officers, the chief strategy officers, the heads of innovation, you know, really from the C-suite across the board. And that helps us form investment theses. And those theses are really what we then go out and look for or or guideposts for what we're looking for from an investment point of view. So it's a real opportunity to sort of listen to where their needs are. We also add our own viewpoint of where we think the future is going to be. And we develop those ideas of where we should be investing the dollars. That has a natural flow that from there, 
we both find things that might be of interest to them and bring that back to them. They also are aware of what those theses are and often uh, originate deals that, um, you, you know, that they think are interesting as well. So it kind mm-hmm. of goes both ways. Okay. Well, let's talk specifically then about, we have, we have your perspective. Let's talk specifically about what you're looking for in the device diagnostic space. I know you knew digital health as well, but this is device talk. So I want to focus on, on that. And I think it would help everyone to understand what Clearly Health does. Can you tell us a little bit about the company? Yeah, Clearly Health is, um, has developed a new coronary artery disease care pathway. And that care pathway is based on being able to very quickly, within a matter of minutes, uh, interpret CT scans and be able to understand the plaque burden. And that plaque burden is not only quantity of plaque, but the characteristics of plaque. And of course, these are the real causes of coronary artery disease. Heart flow and many of the other players out there um, are certainly... Um, you know, there, there's, there's measurements of the flow of blood, which is a proxy for heart disease, but the real cause of heart disease is the ties back to plaque. So this is the first time that you're able to uh, rapidly and quickly do a full uh, analysis of that plaque and the problems presented by that plaque. And then from there, risk stratify patients, figure out which patients are under the most risk. Um, and from there, sort of have an impact and a change on how you uh, take care of those patients and treat patients. And the, you know, kind of the vision that struck us originally from Dr. Men's work was that you can begin to think of managing heart disease um, sort of a little bit of the way that we think about some cancers where we are um, you know, whether it's uh, colonoscopy or mammograms that we, we sort of check in on a regular basis and we can watch the progression of patients. And then we know that patients need to see either change behaviors or go on therapeutics or whatever. Um, and I think we can make a real dent in, in heart disease and heart attacks. So not to be, not to sound cynical, but when you look at these investments or these companies that are looking for investment and you see a technology like this one just broadly a diagnostic that can help you manage a, a chronic and, and deadly disease. Are you looking at it the prism from this will help save lives or from the prism this will help our investors you know, save money, save costs? And I know I know they're not mutually exclusive, but I'm just kind of wondering what's the what's the first thing that really that, that drives you? Is it the life-saving aspect or the economic aspect, or can we not separate the two? Yeah, we, yeah, we don't separate the two. I mean, our view is we're trying to, as a firm, we are uh, we have a mission, and the mission of our firm is to improve healthcare and improve the healthcare delivery, the healthcare systems, the way that patients and um, the way the entire system uh, works. And you know, when you do that, you're you're often going with the flow. Sometimes you're going against the flow. Um, in terms of current practices. So we always have a viewpoint towards where, where can we make these improvements in healthcare or have an impact in healthcare. Um, and often they are also, we believe down the road, good places to make money and to be good investments. So we don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. In fact, I think, you know, they, they, they reinforce each other. You certainly, and, and clearly is a good example, Certainly, you have to navigate the way the healthcare payments are made, and you have to navigate the current practices with all that. And you may, for example, uh, find a place where you can save costs um, and improve lives immediately. Sometimes you may have to get into a mode 
where you're working with the payers around their lowering costs. So there's, I think, a lot of angles that um, that all med device companies have to navigate in terms of are they part of reimbursement or are they part of, um, you know, an improvement in a lowering cost? Are they, um, you know, where do they sort of fit into the payment scheme for sure? Gotcha. So let's just talk then about the uh, your due diligence process. How do you go about examining a company like Clearly Health? Well, clearly is a good example of, of two things coming together where you asked earlier about, you know, sort of deal flow. So clearly um, had two things going for it. One, one from, the, from the start, uh, one was we had a thesis around uh, new care pathways for uh, heart disease. So we were already looking in, in CV uh, for some opportunities. And um, this was a sort of category that we had been thinking about. In the meantime, we also clearly specifically was referred to us by one of our investors. And one of those investors uh, systems, um, you know, has a heart institute that's part of what they do. And some of the leading people there had begun to talk clearly and were really impressed with them. So, you know, it's a good jumpstart in that they were already working with them. They understood the value proposition and they could, um, they could feed that back to us and talk to us about that. So, um, and then from there, you know, our due diligence is pretty extensive. We spent a lot of time with the company. We spent a lot of time going back into the various touch points we have in our healthcare systems who are part of our fund, but we mm-hmm. also have other networks that we tap into. Um, and um, so, you know, the due diligence process is quite long and lots of conversations with people. And then, you know, in a situation, I think with, with uh, device and diagnostics, you're also doing a lot of work on the intellectual property, the, um, the, the technology itself, uh, et cetera. So uh, it has been, it, w- it was definitely a long process and, um, and clearly held up all the way through. Hmm. So actually, I was curious, how, how long do you, do you think this, this took from your first introduction to, to signing a term sheet? Over a year, no, under a year, months? It was, it was actually about a year from the first introduction. The okay. first four or five months were really just getting uh, to know the company a little bit. And the company itself was just beginning to pull the fundraising together. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of a lag time anyway that was natural for the company. Um, and then there was a phase where we worked very hard on it um, and, and geared up. And then part of that was also as the, the investor syndicate came together, we began to share due diligence and work together as an investor group. Mm-hmm. So the co-investors um, on, on this uh, opportunity with clearly our uh, Vinsana, uh, which is a great firm that great firm. Uh, we've yep. gotten to know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, Justin Klein is the lead there. And uh, New Leaf, who we had done uh, some deals with in the past. Wow. And uh, so the three of us also came together in the last probably two to three months of the diligence process and shared, uh, shared that uh, work together. So that sped things up. I'd love to know. How, so were you doing your due diligence first and then they were doing it separately and then you sort of all shared notes? Is that how Correct. it works? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Excellent. Pretty much. Yep. So, and how many times, and I'm asking this just so people listening understand what VCs require, how many conversations do you have with uh, James and the team? Are you checking in weekly, a couple of times a month? Or are you just popping in or is this, are these large conference calls where everyone's in the room at once and kind of getting it all done in an hour or so? 
Well, there's a lot. Uh, uh, there's a, all the above is okay. is going to be the answer. Hmm. So you know, we, we've probably spent um, you know typically, and I think clearly followed the same pathway that many many of our our deals do, which is that you know you're probably going to spend um, uh, anywhere from a half a dozen to ten sort of sessions with with the founder and CEO mm-hmm. and then added to that, uh, you know, sessions with other, other people on the team. Um, and so that's, you know, can be as many as a dozen or 15. And then um, we often have topical discussions uh, and we've done that a couple of times with everybody in the room, including the other co-investors. So you often have, you know, we, we, we did uh, some deeper dives on certain parts of the, of the company or certain aspects of their go-to-market strategy or their technology. And we uh, will do that as a big group. So there can be, you know, as many as 15 or 20 sessions with the company on Mm -hmm. the way to getting to a deal. Interesting. And I'm curious how, uh, how much of this process is also evaluating the other investors, uh, you've, you've just come to know Justin. I've known him for a time and, and VJ as well, but you have to be comfortable with these people. You're going to be in business with them for a little while. Yeah, we all have to be comfortable with each other. And I think, <laughs> the, um, I think uh, this one worked out great. Um, yeah. And we, I think one of the things behind the scenes that all, I think, entrepreneurs who have some experience know is that um, the, both the quality and and um the ability of your syndicate to to work together and be productive together is a big factor that sort of sits behind the scenes. And it's important to have everybody uh, adding value, adding their perspective, disagreeing where there's places to disagree, agreeing and aligned uh, around where you go forward when you, when, you know, when you build that alignment and having alignment of interest um, to support the company is absolutely key. And, you know, we have a lot of conversations along the way with folks like Justin and VJ to get to that point. Um, and uh, no, knowing of them and knowing them a bit from um, from the past helps. But um, I think uh, this one came together great. Really enjoy working with those guys and really looking forward to it. That's great. And just the, the final question, what was the, the sort of the, what gave you the green light? Like, what did you see? What was the final missing piece? What made you decide there was a go point or, or are you sort of in go mode the entire time and waiting for a red light to, to sort of stop you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think what typically happens and I think clearly was was uh, it was true for clearly as well is that you you have both a lot of things that you're checking out and, and thinking through that you really like and are attractive about the opportunity and then you have some other things that are risks in the opportunity or issues in the opportunity that you're running to the ground. And you're trying to either make sure that those risks, um, you know, aren't bigger than you think or are not different than you think. And then you're also spending time figuring out how with the company to mitigate, uh, you know, to mitigate those risks. And I think for us uh, with clearly the feedback we got from different parts of the market, as you'll hear from, from, uh, from Jim, um, they have some opportunities in the private pay market. They have some opportunities uh, in uh, the, the self-insured em- employer market, uh, the population health market, and they'll also uh, be working towards reimbursement um, in a fee-for-service uh, world. So when you look at all that, we wanted to validate that there were opportunities for the company sort of in all those places. 
and all those markets. And we, we got that. So as we continue to do our work and get that validation, I think that's when we started to get to, to go time. That's terrific. All right. Well, this has been uh, very, I know I'm asking you some, some basic questions, but I appreciate your patience. And uh, it's great to sort of understand the process a bit more, really get down the trenches. Trip, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, next up, we're going to hear from Justin Klein. Justin is a co-founder and managing partner at Vensana Capital, as I mentioned up top. Justin formed Vensana with Kirk Nielsen. Kirk left Versant Ventures. Justin previously had been at NEA. They both left their firms to uh, create Vensana, which really invests in sort of mid to late stage med tech companies, growth capital as well. So uh, Justin is a, a very astute investor. He did really well at NEA. And you might remember from our uh, conversation with James Min, the CEO of Clearly Health, he had uh, said he really connected with uh, one of the VCs who had an MD and a JD, and that was Justin Klein. So uh, Justin uh, is, uh, again, super insightful. Great to have him on the program. We'll talk about how he came to know about Clearly Health and uh, what went into bringing the syndicate together. So let's hear from Justin Klein. Justin Klein, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here with you, as always. Appreciate it. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, about Clearly Health. Uh, I'm curious to know, how did you first come to know about the company? And, and specifically, I want to know how do, you know, we always have folks like yourselves up in a panel. How do, how do you find deals is kind of a common question. So this is kind of a really single data point on that question. How did you find this deal in particular? Yeah, so this one was actually uh, an introduction that a friend of mine, Seth Demergy, who heads MedTech Banking at UBS, uh, made. He had been spending time in the broader category, kind of medical device and digital health, and met Jim. Uh, I think hearing the pitch and Jim's vision for the company and the opportunity and recognizing they were early in their process of raising a Series B round, thought that uh, Jim and I would, would get along really well and we'd be a good fit together. Um, and so he connected us and he was right. It, it was a, it was a great match. Um, if you've spoken with Jim or spent time, uh, you, you'll learn that Jim can fit about a thousand words per minute. And <laughs> it, it, it'll take time to sort of fully digest, you know, what, what Jim is describing and offering and how he, uh, has a vision for clearly, but in spending that time together, I've really grown to appreciate, you know, the, the depth of his vision for this opportunity. And, um, and it was a good fit for us and our firm and how we see opportunities in kind of the intersection of medical devices and related procedures and, and digital health opportunities. So we were really excited that, that Seth connected us and we're excited to be involved with the company now. That's great to hear. Jim had mentioned uh, the, his connection with you as well as one of the reasons he enjoyed working with Vansana. So apparently there was a, a VC connection there, which is always always nice to hear. Um, how, when you first look at a deal, and again, let's focus on Clearly Health, that first impression, is it talking to the, the CEO and, and just getting a sense of who that person is? Are you listening more for that? Or are, are you listening more for the work that they're doing? And I'm sure it's a mix of both. So which, which weighs heavier in your kind of walking away from that first conversation and saying, I want to, I want to hear more? Yeah, I think, um, I think particularly for an early stage investment opportunity, we are listening to the entrepreneur and trying to understand 
who they are and how they think. I, I think most important, we're trying to understand the insight they have into some particular market need. And, and whether it's clinical or commercial or everything in between, it, it, it's really important that we believe they've, they've had experiences and they have a depth of insight into the unmet need and the, and the best way in which it could be solved. And they're applying that you know, in their work with this startup. You know, from there, we think a lot about the path ahead, of course, and, and we could spend more time talking about all the things we diligence to get comfortable mm-hmm. with making an investment. But in that first meeting, it's really about trying to understand whether this person has unique insight and is applying that in a way that could enable a really compelling, you know, technology or, or business service that goes and solving that problem. That's interesting. I mean, it sounds almost a, almost akin to a, a job interview. You want to know how this person is going to be to work with and how they're going to react to things and where they see themselves going forward. So where uh, let's talk then about the due diligence. So you had the first conversation, you, you connected that you realized there was a, a potential there for an investment. Uh, how do you go about vetting this particular opportunity? Well, to maybe give a little context, maybe I can describe what I think clearly is doing and then, you know, how we sort of went about fully understanding it and thinking about how it could become a business through, through Jim's work in cardiology. He's really become one of the experts in the field of cardiac CT and frankly, broader imaging technologies, but particularly deep in, in cardiac CT, which we recognize is an imaging modality that's gaining in its credibility for how it can be used and applied in clinical management of coronary artery disease, as well as some other structural heart indications. Um, Jim also understood, you know, that there are certain technology constraints around cardiac CT and interpretation and the work associated with that is, is painstaking, even for expert readers, but that by applying you know, technologies like machine vision and, and artificial intelligence, you could automate a lot of the process of, or simplify, make more efficient the process of analyzing, interpreting, and reporting on cardiac CT in a way that makes it much more user-friendly, you know, for the clinical environment. So that, I think that's the first piece of, of what Clearly has done really well. They've developed a technology platform with software that really facilitates wider spread use of cardiac CT, which has clear benefits around managing patients with coronary artery disease. I think the second thing that they've done that's very compelling is how they've applied insight they've gained from proprietary data sets that allowed them to look at a cardiac CT and analyze it completely, but then also have even deeper insight into what's going on for a patient in their current health status, but also the risk factors associated with their coronary artery disease and how it's characterized. And so longer term, you know, this is more than just a workflow tool, which we think is in and of itself very valuable and it helps facilitate the go-to-market. But there's so much more that we can get out of cardiac CT than people get today based on the, the insights that Jim has, the ways which the field is validating the use of cardiac CT. Mm-hmm. We think there are multiple ways in which this can be commercialized over time. And where does that recognition of potential come from? Does it come from your conversations with Jim or, or did you clean this from conversations with folks 
with whom you've done due diligence and talked to them about this idea and this concept? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think in the broader context of understanding how widely used imaging is in guiding medical procedures, you know, we recognize it's becoming an enabling technology for a lot of different interventions, you know, with patients and how we manage patients. Um, it's, it's broadly a secular trend that we see underpinning a lot of growth opportunities across med tech, including medical device and products and procedures. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of that too, is the fact that people are getting a lot more sophisticated applying things like machine learning and, and artificial intelligence to the field of radiology and imaging to derive even more insight and value into these traditional you know, imaging studies that we now can do more with. So against that backdrop, we've been looking at the broader field. I think Jim brought greater focus to our attention on cardiovascular disease, and in particular coronary artery disease, and thinking carefully through you know, the paradigm around managing patients who are presenting with active chest pain, as well as those that, that may be at risk for coronary artery disease and asymptomatic or not presenting as such clinically, but nevertheless, what a poor job our system does in identifying those patients and figuring out who needs to be managed medically more aggressively and who doesn't. So thinking about just broader the resource utilization and ways in which our healthcare system could do much better having insight and, and the ways in which diagnostics like clearly mm-hmm. could help improve that. Uh, Jim is, Jim is the expert in this, in this field, in my opinion. So, uh, you know, his depth of knowledge and the way in which he educated us were, you know, first in a lot of ways that mm-hmm. we then through our diligence process explored with his peers and, you know, both experts in academia and and at the society level and leadership and fields like cardiology or cardiovascular imaging. And then also on the industry side as well. You know, we talked to a lot of folks with responsibility for these product lines and business units and how they see, you know, this intersection of imaging and, and therapy evolving over time. Great. No, he's an, he's an impressive fellow for sure. So you, you identify this as a, as a company you want to be an investor in. What is the next step for, for a firm? How, does, how do you make your interest known and, and how, do you, how does the syndicate begin to get assembled? I was going to say, how do you start assembling a syndicate? But I don't even know if, if you sort of initiated or if, or if the company itself is sort of bringing people, bringing potential co-investors together. Yeah, so, so it, it can happen in, in all of the above. Yeah, at Vensana, we have led or co-led every financing that we've participated in. And so we're accustomed to leading with a term sheet, frequently you know, leaving room in a financing proposal that we would lead for existing investors and then also new investors. And we always try to work collaboratively with a company and their board and their investor syndicate. To, to fill out financings with folks we think would add a lot of value to the project. In this particular case, the company was running a financing process. And so it was a, it was a competitive deal. And we, we were fortunately selected for our term sheet. And similar to what I just described, you know, that included room for follow-on investment from the existing investors. And then we, with the company, after agreeing to the 
you know, sort of parameters of the financing, engage with them further, including some of the investors they were talking to as part of their financing process. Then we introduced them to some others mm-hmm. uh, that we thought would be particularly interested and, and good partners for this deal. So in the case of Clearly, um, we, we did a bit of all of the above that you're describing. What are, are there benefits to, what are the benefits to leading or, or co-leading a deal, all of your deals? I, I would imagine that there's some instances where maybe it's better to, to be in the backseat um, as opposed to leading all the time, or, or is it, what, what is, what, what is your, why is it your preference to, to lead or co-lead a deal? In general, it helps ensure that we're going to be in a position to work closely with the board and management team mm-hmm. over the long term. And so we like to lead because it's, it's one of the best ways in which we can crystallize our view of a company and its opportunity, and then the strategic direction and operating plan, you know, you should line up against that to go execute against. Mm-hmm. And then ensure that as we, you know, build a syndicate, you know, we're working directly with that company to, to find like-minded investors that, that see it similarly. You know, we, we do join the board of every company we invest in, at least we have to date. And, and I think, frankly, in our, in our prior roles at First, since in NEA, we, we were probably on nearly every board of every, every deal that we led. Sure. And so it's just a natural role for us. And as such, you know, I think, I think leading a financing is sort of part of that process that allows you to establish those relationships and, you know, that role with the company. Well, let's talk a little bit about this syndicate and how did the players come together? Did you... Uh, we, we talked earlier, or you mentioned earlier that it could be a mix of your finding people and the company having people. Can you speak specifically to how this syndicate came together? Yeah. So, I, so with, with Jim and the board, when we had agreed to uh, Vinsana leading the series B, we then kind of penciled out the target size of the round, our participation in that, what the existing investors had an appetite to do. And then we thought about how to, how to identify other investors that might want to join, uh, whether they would also either join the board or, or be board observers. We kind of think about all these things and sort of systematically, you know, developed a list of investors that, that we wanted to work with. And in, in several cases, the company had some dialogue with them. In other cases, they were new introductions that we made after signing the term sheet. And, because we had been a lead and we, we tend to complete nearly all of our diligence before providing a term sheet uh, so that the company can rely on that term sheet and know that we're, we're serious. Um, you know, we then kind of work with each of these potential investors who join the syndicate to complete their own diligence. Some, some of that leveraging our work in other cases, you know, they're doing their own independent diligence and mm-hmm. it will be supportive whenever way we can. In this particular project, um, we syndicated the financing with LRV Health and New Leaf Partners and Digitex and a, a strategic that um, e- each of whom has great depth of experience in, in related areas, whether it's diagnostics or healthcare IT and, and workflow solutions like Clearly Can Be. Or in other cases, particularly like with this payer around value-based care paradigms mm-hmm. and thinking about how to 
more efficiently manage resources used in cardiovascular disease. So we've, we've got a great syndicate that's come together for this one. A few of us are taking board seats. A couple of people are going to be board observers. And, and then from there, you know, we've, we've further focused on building out the board and, and looking for some independent directors to join us that, that aren't affiliated with either the investors or the company. But again, you know, bring a unique perspective and skill set to the board that'll fundamentally help both the board and the management team go execute on the vision. So did you make the initial connection with, did, did you bring all of these co-investors in or was, again, was it a mix? Uh, it was a mix. Okay. It was a mix. I think in the case of LRV, we reached out to them mm -hmm. directly. In the case of New Leaf, uh, I've known VJ for a long time, but he had also been introduced to the company as part of their financing process and had dialogue with them. Uh, same thing with Digitex. David Kim, I've known for a really long time and worked with previously but it also heard about the, the company separately and pretty early in the process expressed interest in participating in the round. So we were excited to have all three join. Um, in the final case of the strategic, uh, that actually grew out of an active dialogue that the company had been having with, with that strategic in their business unit and their venture group got engaged in parallel and ultimately you wanted to invest alongside of us. Mm -hmm. And you hadn't worked with LRV before. Uh, what is yep. that process That's like, right. you know, connecting with a new investor? You, you, you've been investing in this industry for a while. You know a lot of people. I imagine it's probably easier just to invest with people who, for whom you already know. Uh, what, what's the process like to talking to someone new and, and deciding you need to, to work with them? Is it very much like interviewing a, or, just, or meeting a CEO of a potential investment or is it a different conversation? Well, like, like happens in a lot of cases, um, we were introduced by a mutual uh, friend and another head of a venture firm in the healthcare IT space that has worked with both of us and thought that for this particular project, LRV and members of the team there would be really ideally positioned mm -hmm. to add a lot of value on the board. Um, LRV also has a really uh, interesting LP base mm -hmm. that includes a number of strategics in the healthcare space that frankly do get involved um, and help a number of LRV's companies uh, either pilot new technologies or service offerings. And, and frankly, they do a lot to help build these businesses through those relationships. And so, you know, in the process of reaching out and getting connected with Trip, who is LRV's board representative at, at Clearly, just built a, a good relationship, you know, largely based on what we were seeing and thinking about actively with Clearly as a company, you know, where the opportunities are, where the where the needs are for the business, but then more broadly, just talking about our approach to funding companies and serving on boards. And, you know, I think, frankly, found a lot of alignment in how we approach questions like that. So have, having shared values on these things is, is fundamentally important, I think, to finding, you know, good compatibility. And just final question, where do you see, uh, what do you see clearly health becoming? Well, we, we think clearly has some utility, certainly on the, uh, on the workflow front, as I described, cardiac CT is steadily gaining in favor with all of the leading cardiovascular societies globally, and as well as in the U.S. It's becoming, you know, frankly, increasingly regarded as a standard of care or, or the preferred imaging modality of choice mm -hmm. for managing patients with stable chest pain. We, we think that, that further as value-based care 
paradigms evolve and become more important relative to fee-for-service, um, this can be a cornerstone technology to enabling you know, much more efficient use of resources in managing patients with coronary artery disease. I think the same opportunity holds in some other areas relating to structural heart disease, you know, relating to valves and other conditions for which cardiac CT is being frequently used for the quality of its imaging. And I think, you know, when you're, when you're getting a cardiac CT, there's so much information that can be mined out of that for the benefit of the patient, multiple indications. It's a pretty compelling, you know, opportunity. I think longer term uh, clearly has an opportunity to further define a new paradigm around which um, we have better methods for assessing risk in patients and, and developing prognostics around coronary artery disease. And when you think about coronary artery disease being one of the, or maybe the leading killer of people, not only in the United States, but in every country around the world at every sort of economic tier, um, it is a massive unmet need. And we can absolutely do a better job of managing risk associated with CAD and whether it's putting the right patients on optimized medical therapy or more closely watching patients at greater risk of having future events. Um, there's a lot we can do to improve outcomes and reduce cost in this category. And I think clearly has the opportunity to, to drive a lot of that paradigm. Excellent. Great thoughts. Great insights. Appreciate the, uh, the look inside and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I certainly appreciate it and uh, look forward to our next opportunity together too. I was great to hear more about Clearly Health. And now, Chris Newmarker, you know what time it is. It is time for the social media. You can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. And I'm on Twitter at Newmarker. Always, uh, always happy to talk to people. Awesome. And I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. I'm on Twitter at MedTech. Tom. And like Chris said, it's great to talk to folks. If you do share this podcast episode, we certainly hope you do. Please uh, connect Chris and myself to those posts so we can be part of those conversations. And of course, please do subscribe to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. You can find that on all major podcast channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, the works, we're everywhere. So uh, please do connect to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. If you subscribe, it's sent directly to your listening device as soon as it comes out. I don't know why you would want to wait. Like, follow, <laughs> subscribe. There it is. There it is. We need stickers. We need some merchandise, Chris, with that on there. Right. And you can also find our Medtronic Talks podcast on those channels as well. So subscribe to that. Yeah, also. Tom, when am I going to get some Device Talks bling? Merch. Device Talks merch. I'll take merch. I think we need yeah. to, we need to uh, talk with the folks in marketing. I think we definitely yeah, need, I need some merch, man. need some T-shirts. <laughs> we need some stickers. Right. need some mugs. Got to represent. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think that's a great idea, Chris. Why don't we get working on that yeah. right after we're done with this podcast? Let's do it. All right, folks. Thanks for uh, for tuning in to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Tune in and next week. We'll have another great episode of this podcast waiting for you. Hey, stay safe. Get vaccinated soon. Enjoy the summer. 